0: Do you hear now the reading of God's word? Again, this morning we are starting a new series uh, during the, the Christmas season and then the Advent season that begins next week. So the scripture reading this morning is gonna come from Luke chapter one, verses 67 to verse 80. So this is one part of the birth of Christ story that we're gonna walk through for the next several weeks. The context of this verse is, this is coming from, Uh, the lips of a man named Zechariah, who I'll explain a little bit more about in just a moment. But for now, would you hear the word of the Lord? Luke chapter 1, 67 to 80. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his first public appearance to Israel. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us as we begin uh, to go deeper into this text and what God has for us today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you take this text and the words of my mouth now and use them to communicate truth and comfort and peace and hope uh, to all of us. We want to hear your voice today. We want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit uh, speaking directly to our heart uniquely. So would you open us up now to hear your teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so peace is what we're going to be focusing on for the next five weeks, going deep into this um, this word and finding peace for you. So it's my prayer that each person here would experience the peace of God in the next five weeks in a totally unique way. That's my prayer. And so for the next five Sundays, we'll be discovering that through looking at different parts of the traditional Christmas story. And so particularly looking through the lens of a particular person or group of people in the Christmas story. So most of you know the story of the birth of Jesus. You've heard it taught, Um, but there's always things in there that can freshly teach us during this season. So Luke chapter one and two and Matthew chapter one and two are going to be where we're going to be focusing most of our attention during this season. And then I'll draw in some other texts as well to go More precisely into different aspects of peace, but we're also we're going to be looking at specific people. And so today we're looking at the person Zechariah. So kind of looking at what peace looks like through the lens of this man Zechariah. So it's important for us to know then who Zechariah is, because like many Bible names and characters, there's multiple Zecharias in the Bible. So this is not the Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet that has his own book of the Bible. So don't go to the Old Testament Zechariah. That's a different Zechariah altogether. The Zechariah that we just read the words of in Luke chapter 1 is a priest who is working in the temple during the time of Herod the king. That's what we learn in Luke 1.5. And his wife is a woman named Elizabeth who, like many Bible women, is barren. She's not able to have children. And then an angel appears to Elizabeth and, and to Zechariah and tells them that they're going to give birth to a son. And the son will be one who is like the prophet Elijah, who will come and prepare the way for the Messiah or the Christ to come and to be born. And this is exciting news. However, the news is a little bit too exciting for Zechariah because he doesn't quite believe the angel And so he hesitates, is unsure, has a lot of questions, doesn't believe. And so, therefore, as verses 18 and 20 of chapter 1 tell us, because he doubted, the angel mutes the mouth of Zechariah until the birth of his son and says, You will now be silent until you see that this is true. And so, verses 57 to 66, you see the birth of Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. And they name the son John. John the Baptist is who he is. He's the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. And once John is born, Zechariah's lips are opened again and he is allowed to speak. And what I just read a moment ago is what Zechariah responds with to the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. He goes into this beautiful prayer of blessing on the Lord for what he has done for him and his wife and for the whole nation of Israel. So great story, right? You may say, what does that have to do with peace though? How does that tie into the series that we're jumping into? I wanna direct you to verse 79, which is the very end of his prayer. And he says this, he's praying a prayer of blessing on the Lord and he's acknowledging what God does for him. And he says this, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the path of peace or to the way of peace. If you put that in the context of what Zechariah's prayer is about, he's talking about the whole nation of Israel. And again, his son is the one who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, who is the hope of Israel to come and to change things for the fate of Israel long term. And the way that Zechariah concludes his prayer is that we're praying for the one to guide our feet into the way of peace. Israel, a tiny little nation in the context of a giant world to guide them into peace. I think that Zechariah is praying for world peace in his prayer. That he's praying that the Messiah would come and bring about not just peace for one person or for one nation, but for the whole world that the hope of world peace is laying at the feet of the Messiah who is to come, that his son is going to prepare the way for. And so that's what we're going to focus on today, world peace. Just a small subject we're going to look at today. So today's points are, one, what is real world peace? Number two, what is biblical peace? And then number three, what is the peace that the Messiah or Jesus actually does bring with him? So number one, what is world peace? Again, just small topics we're chewing on today. What is world peace? And to go to that, let's start with the classic movie, Miss Congeniality from the year 2000 and Sandra Bullock. Maybe you've seen this movie. If you haven't, that's okay, because I'm sure you've heard something along these lines. But Sandra Bullock is the star in this, this movie, Miss Congeniality. And she gets entered into this beauty pageant for Miss USA. And all of the contestants in the Miss USA pageant are asked the question in front of the judges, what matters most to you? And if you've seen the movie, one by one, each participant, each beauty pageant contestant answers world peace. Each person, one after another, world peace. That's what matters most to me. And so it gets to Sandra Bullock and she hesitates And you can tell she wants to say something else, but she says, world peace. And it's just kind of the cliche answer for beauty pageant contestants. What do you want the most in life? We want world peace. Of course you do. But what does that even really mean? What does world peace even look like today? It's, It's something that obviously we all long for. We just prayed for it a little bit ago. But what do we mean by the world being at peace? I think most people, when they're using that phrase, they, they refer to the absence of something. So we want the world to be void of or absent of war or conflict or division or fighting or violence. Like We want things to go away, and that's what peace would be. So we want peace from the wars between Ukraine and Russia, or Israel and Hamas, or racial tension, or civil unrest, or political turmoil, or the threat of nuclear war. We want those things to go away, and that would be world peace. I think that's how probably most of us think about it. There's an organization called Vision of Humanity that has a website devoted to this kind of stuff, and they call that kind of world peace negative peace. So again, it's like we want to take something away. And this year, they have a, they, this organization has what's called a Global Peace Index, and where they kind of analyze the whole world in terms of how peaceful is it, how peaceful is it becoming. And it reveals that over 60% of people worldwide are at least somewhat worried about sustaining serious harm from violent crime. So six out of every 10 people around the world are worried that they're gonna experience violence at some point, which means that we got a long way to go in terms of eradicating harm and having world peace. And so they talk about, this organization talks about different examples of global challenges today. They talk about environmental degradation. They talk about increasingly scarce stock and overuse of our natural resources. Talk about population growth, they talk about social discontent, the proliferation of extraordinarily destructive weapons. All those things are important when we think about world peace, but that, that's not the full story. That's not enough to fully understand peace, because peace can't just be removing something. Peace needs also needs to be the addition of something. What about the presence of other good things? The presence of peace building that we talked about, that we prayed about, or the presence of something else that takes the place of violence, for instance. So the rebuilding of nations after they experience violence. You know, if the war ends, you still have to rebuild the country. Bring peace yourself. And so this same organization talks about something that we need called positive peace or resilient peace, And so they talk about these eight pillars of positive peace, a well-functioning government, low levels of corruption, strong business environment, acceptance of the rights of others, equitable distribution of resources, free flow of information, high levels of human capital, good relationship with neighbors. Those are eight pillars that they say are positive peace, which sounds great, right? Let me just go even a little bit deeper. Let me give you just a history of world peace efforts for a second. I won't spend too much time on this, but I'm building up a point here. It's been a challenge throughout all of history to bring world peace, obviously. That's why the United Nations was founded after World War II in 1945 when it ended. Nations were in ruins and they, the world wanted peace. So representatives of 50 countries arrived at the gathering of the United Nations Conference on international organization in San Francisco, and for a couple of months, they proceeded to draft and then sign the UN Charter, which created a new international organization, the U, the UN, the United Nations, which it, which it was hoped would prevent another world war like the one they had just lived through. That's why the United Nations started was to bring about world peace. We have a whole prize called the Nobel Peace Prize, which started in 1901. For what purpose? To promote peace congresses around the world and they've been awarded to people around the world doing various wonderful peace building things or even if you go back to the time of jesus himself when jesus was being born the most powerful empire in the world was called the roman empire and they promoted what they called the Pax romana which is roman peace which was when they were experiencing a long time of no war they thought they had achieved peace in the world through the Pax Romana because they had subdued all their enemies and there was no fighting. And that lasted from 27 BCE to 180 AD. So almost 200 years. But as we talk about what is world peace, do you hear how everything I just mentioned is political? Every single thing I just mentioned is through political geo geographic, social, it's all all that stuff. As if we as humans can put together a great system to bring about world peace. So number two, what is biblical peace? In the Bible, there's a word that you should be very familiar with because you're sitting in a city that uses the word. But there's a word that encompasses world peace, in a comprehensive, holistic, beautiful, full way that is well beyond just political peace. And it's the Hebrew word, shalom, from which Salem derives. Shalom is biblical peace from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. It's a huge promise throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 54 or Ezekiel 34 It's talked about as a covenant, a covenant of shalom, a covenant of peace between God and the world and humanity that God promises to bring about his shalom peace. It's talked about in a coming future way of there will be future peace and prosperity, not just of Israel and of Zion, a phrase you read about in the Old Testament, but also of the whole world. Places like Isaiah 1 through 11 or Zechariah 8, the other Zechariah, Zechariah 8 and then 9 and 10, or certainly Revelation 21 and 22, a coming peace where things are made right. And then there's the promise of the one who would come to bring about that peace in Isaiah 9, 6, One who would be called the Prince of Peace, the coming Messiah himself. Some of this still kind of has political sounds though, doesn't it? It's like there's going to be a leader, there's going to be a land, there's going to be peace and prosperity through certain agents or certain enterprises. There's still a little bit of a political tinge to that. So is that all that what shalom is? The word shalom means more than just the English word peace for you and I. Like I want... I'm going to give you just a bunch of words here, almost like a puzzle, and put each of these words together, and these words collectively make up shalom, wholeness, completeness, safe, uninjured. It's a restoration of sorts. Shalom is not just about a political absence of war or even just the presence of peacemaking opportunity. Shalom is about every single thing in life, in the whole universe, being correct, being whole, being put back together. Nothing out of place, nothing missing, nothing incomplete, wholeness. Fullness—that That is what the shalom word means. It's a total well-being, not just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of things being right, the presence of things being whole. Listen, I want you to listen to this verse that I'm about to read and see if you hear any, anything political in this understanding of peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Do you feel the difference in that peace versus the political peace that the UN or the Nobel Peace Prize is trying to reward? As good as those efforts are. The peace of shalom that the Lord offers through the scripture is a totally more complete, full picture of peace. It's even used as a greeting to this current day in the Jewish world. Shalom. Paul uses it as a welcome and a greeting and a conclusion in all of his letters. Grace and peace to you, my friends. In all of his letters in the New Testament, he uses it. That's just a a small understanding of what biblical peace is. Now, you may wonder, I have this text listed in the, um, or printed off in the bulletin for you from Matthew 10, 34 to 39. This is the third point. So, what is Jesus's peace then? Because he, the pro- he claims to be the promised coming Messiah, the Prince of Peace that was foretold in Isaiah. He came and said, I am the one, I am God's Son, I am the one that you've been waiting for. So how does Jesus understand peace and his own mission as the Messiah or as the Christ? (laughs) This text is gonna surprise you, okay? Matthew 10, 34 to 39. This is where we'll kind of finish the last 10 minutes of the sermon. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. These are the words of Jesus himself. Do not think, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. What? Hold on. Let me read that again. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Prince of Peace says that. What do we do with that? I admit this is a bit bold of me to use this text in a sermon that I'm claiming that Jesus is the peacemaker of the whole world. And yet here he is claiming I didn't come to bring peace so it is, is this one of the greatest contradictions in the whole Bible? Or is there a way that we can understand this in a way that Jesus is probing us deeper? This is a deeply surprising text. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. And which means that Jesus also is saying, I did not come with political intentions. There will be no political war, Jesus is saying. Again, If you're a disciple of Jesus during this time, you know the prophecies. You know what the Bible has been teaching about a coming Messiah who's going to come to Israel and bring peace to them. And so there's a hinge, a twinge of political understanding of peace that was just built in to the Jewish DNA. And they're expecting Jesus to come and do something about the Romans, to come and do something about the persecution, and now Jesus comes and says, I didn't come to bring peace for you with the Romans necessarily. I came to bring a sword. There will be no political war right now. I'm coming to do something different. So let's, let's walk this through a little bit. First, Jesus comes with a sword. And you see here, the sword is dividing families. One thing that's common in our day and that was common in their day is that family is everything. All of us would agree that we just, we just spent holidays with our families, most of us. A lot of us, if we have family close by, we wanted to spend time with them because we think family is the most important thing in our life. And yet Jesus is saying, as much as he loves family because he created it, there's something even more important to life than your family. And Jesus says, it's me. It's allegiance to me that is even more important than your family dynamic. And Jesus is saying, I'm bringing a sword because I want your full allegiance above everything else. And he's talking to individual people. He's he's talking to the hearts and the souls of individual Jewish disciples at this point, saying, you may want me to be a dictator or a a leader or an emperor. You may want me to be. Something for you that'll bring it'll fit into your system, he says. But I'm actually coming to be something even more so than that. I'm coming to be your number one allegiance in everything in life, even above good things like family. He says, It's me or nothing. He doesn't put himself among other things, he puts himself right in the middle of everything and says, You need to choose. Am I enough? Am I enough for you? to experience life to the full. Do you see how many times here he says the phrase worthy of me? You know, whoever puts certain things above him is then not worthy of him. That means if you put anything above allegiance to the Prince of Peace, then actually you're not gonna experience the full peace that he offers because you're placing something else above him, above your family, above your comfort, above your own life. Jesus says that's where true peace is found. So Jesus does not come with political intentions. Jesus comes with discipleship intentions. Jesus didn't come to start a new country or to take over the, every country of the world and to, and to have everything under his feet in that political way. Jesus came to call disciples to himself. A disciple is one who, who learns from him one who follows him, one who finds their all in all in him. Jesus calls us to take up our own cross and to follow him and to lose your life and to find it. Jesus is saying, are you willing to lay all these things to the side to lose it so you can find it through allegiance to me? And I think by virtue of that, that's where the peace of Christ comes through full allegiance to him. And that is a challenging thing to preach. And that's a challenging thing to teach because that will not draw a big crowd here or anywhere else. Because it's easy to put Jesus alongside other things like a healthy financial life or a healthy family or a comfortable scenario. It's easy to bring Jesus into that and say, yes, that's great. But to say Jesus above all else That's where where people get scared. So why would Jesus say this? And why would we want to say yes to him on this? Why would we want to take him up on that offer? Number one, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to bank on exclusive truth, that there is one exclusive truth in the world. Because exclusive truth does bring about peace, he's saying. And again, you have to divorce that from political exclusive truth because there are political leaders who claim to be the one way right in the world but jesus is saying i'm bringing exclusive truth not for political gain but for soul gain for your heart it's important for us to recognize that jesus's deep insistence on exclusive truth brings about peace peace john fourteen seven later on it says i am the way the truth and the life and this is just as deeply uncomfortable for people back then as it is for us now. Because again, to say one, one thing or one way is above the other means that everything else has to fall to the side. But Jesus says, you need me and nothing else. No one comes to the Father except through me. So exclusive truth brings about peace. Number two, Jesus is saying that, that wartime is the time where you have to make decisions for peace, Right? Like there's a reason we're praying so intensely for Ukraine and for Israel and all these places now. It's because they're in war. That's when you make decisions for peace is during wartime. And Jesus is saying that when he was living, there was a spiritual war happening and there's still a spiritual war happening in each of our own souls today. And it's in that time of war when your sin is covering you the most, when you're at your bottom, when you're at the at the lowest point in your life when you're feeling the most broken that's the time to make decisions for peace. Jesus is offering peace with God again. He's saying you can be reconciled to God now during wartime. Romans 5:1 says if we've been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads into the third point is that peace is not an idea Peace is a person. Peace is Jesus himself. He's, he, Jesus didn't say, I'm not bringing peace, but essentially he's saying, I'm not bringing peace because I am peace. You don't need me to give that to you. You just need me because I am peace. I am the prince of peace. If you have me, you have peace. John fourteen twenty seven. he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And number four is the last point. Jesus is saying that if I am peace, the person, then it's, It's peace, the person that makes peace. So he says, if you choose me above all else, if you declare your allegiance to me as the Lord of your life, as the God of your life, then you then can become a peacemaker in the world. So again, you can accomplish a lot of good things in the world apart from belief in Jesus. You can help create the UN. You can help give out Nobel Peace Prizes. But there's going to be limits to how much you can actually accomplish. But by faith in the Son of God, who is himself our peace, you then can be what Jesus called his disciples to be in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. So if you want to bring about peace on the earth, hang out with the Prince of Peace. Be reconciled to him and be a person of peace everywhere you go. Peace doesn't come primarily through treaties, but peace comes through peacemaking people who bring about peace. And the only way to have that true peace is by knowing the God of all peace himself. So this is a bold sermon, I get it. Um, and the person I'm about to reference would not agree with me on what I'm saying. Um, he's a man named Christopher Hitchens, who has now passed away, but he was a famous atheist who lived and wrote many books and he loved to debate Christians and all religious people, really. Um, he's kind of a mean guy. He wrote a book called God is not great. How religion poisons everything. He made it his life ambition to show how religion and particularly Christianity is the opposite of peace. How religion as an organized thing does more harm to the world than good to the world. He argues how exclusive religion or the claims of exclusive truth damages the whole world and brings about hindrances to peace as opposed to the promises of peace. And that's something we have to reconcile with and wrestle with our own life because a lot of bad has been done in the name of Jesus. A lot of bad has been done in the name of religion or a lot of teachings from the Bible have been taken and, and contorted and twisted and then people have been killed because of it. And that is the opposite of what shalom peace is. That's the wicked underbelly of it. But I'm trying to encourage us towards a better way. In these next four weeks, we're gonna look at how shalom that we've learned about today really does provide a better answer than all the other things of the world, than division, than anxiety, than fear. All these things that grab our hearts How do we overcome anxiety? That's what we're gonna look at next week, for instance. How do you overcome anxiety or depression or stress or worry in your life? The Prince of Peace. That's where you start. So let me finish just by giving you, um, I'm just gonna read a verse from a brand new Christmas song that I heard this week. It's by a a modern songwriter named Phil Wickham. And he wrote a, a new song this year called Manger Throne. Just listen to these lyrics. He says, You could have stepped into creation with fire for all to see, brought every tribe and nation to their knees, arriving with the host of heaven in royal robe and crown, the rulers of the earth all bowing down. But you chose meekness over majesty, wrapped your power in humanity. You could have marched in all your glory into the heart of Rome, showed them splendor like they'd never known. But you wrote a better story. In humble Bethlehem, creator in the arms of common men, you will die for our redemption, and you will rise so we can live. Glory be to you alone, king who reigns from a manger throne. My life, my praise, everything I own, to Jesus the king on a manger throne. Amen. God, would you give us your peace now? Would you help us to discern the truer story and the truer peace that is offered in the world through your name that is above and beyond all other peace that we strive for in this world? Would you give our hearts peace now as we wrestle with this word from you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.